All right. We're back from the four-minute break. Ready to resume. I'm so tempted to tell the Mark Twain joke again, but you've probably heard me tell it almost every time I speak. Um, go for it. Some of you can't remember back two weeks ago, right? Um, <laughs> Mark Twain was uh, asked by uh, one of his acquaintances if he could uh, do a, a small talk at a, at a luncheon gathering. And uh, Twain said, well, um, when is it? Because... If you want me to speak for 10 minutes, I need a couple of weeks to prepare. If you want me to speak for an hour and a half, I can do that right now. <laughs> and that's how I work. Yeah, so Larry didn't give me much notice. This might go a while. Um, yeah, there you go. Uh, for, oh, gosh, it is a game, isn't it? Yeah, there's a game today, a couple of games today. Um, all right, hold on. Of course, now I'll tell Larry's joke. You know what it means when a pastor puts his watch down on the podium? Yeah. Nothing. <laughs> means absolutely nothing. Yeah, he proves that all the time. He does. He, he, he tells that joke as often as I tell the Mark Twain one. Um, let me pray first, and then we'll start. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to gather in your name, to join together in worship towards you, to share fellowship with each other, to present to you our tithes and offerings, to share in communion together, and then to consider your word and to be built up and encouraged by your word and by each other. Pray a blessing, Father. Pray you would give me the things that you want said this morning and not the things I want to say. Thank you, Father, for your promises. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the other thing you have to know about me when you ask me to speak is that um, I teach in an online high school. Um, all of my classes meet two days a week, two 90-minute sessions, either Monday, Wednesday, or Tuesday, Thursday. Um, and then I teach at the Francis Schaeffer Study Center on Wednesdays. Those classes all run an hour. So my normal mode of speaking is when I start talking to people to speak for between 60 and 90 minutes. I mean, that's just, there's a switch somewhere, and you flip that switch, and I speak for 60 to 90 minutes. Um, so I'll try. I will try. <laughs> yeah, oh, the great thing about teaching online is you have a little, um, beside, you have a participant list of the students. I have about 20 students in an electronic classroom. Beside each student is a little vertical bar that indicates their current level of engagement. So if it's green, I know they're paying attention. And if they click away and start playing solitaire or checking Facebook or whatever, it goes yellow. And if they're away from the electronic classroom for more than 90 seconds, then it goes red. So I can look over and see if a bunch of students' little bars have turned red. I go, okay, time to close this rabbit trail down, get back on topic, play them a video, throw up something interactive. I got to do so, you know, there's nothing over your heads that gives me any feedback like that. So I can count the closed eyelids and the nodding heads, but. Yeah. Yeah. Raise your hand. Yes. <laughs> All right. The topic is our identity in Christ. And uh, there were a lot of things that came to mind when Larry asked me to preach. Um, I'm passionately interested in history, which means I'm passionately interested in um, current events. Um, the joke, of course, among European historians is that America doesn't really quite have history yet. It's still all current events. Um, 
because we've only been doing this for 250 years. And, and I go back and teach all the way from the ancient world to the modern. So for me, centuries are, are the measuring blocks. And America doesn't have too many centuries yet. And, of course, we've had a lot of current events um, in the last few months, and we are still having them. It's, there's an ancient Chinese curse that goes, may you live in interesting times. Because it's not a blessing, necessarily, to live in interesting times. Um, now, some things are fascinating. I, I, I must confess, I was a huge um, fan of the U.S. space program. I, everything NASA and Rocket and Mercury and Gemini and Apollo during the 60s, those were my formative years. Um, I was 15 the summer that we landed on the moon, and so... I had a, a, a plastic model of every single rocket and spacecraft that NASA ever launched, and I can tell you all sorts of obscure and totally irrelevant facts about them. And all of that kind of went away, because we put 12 men on the moon, and then we stopped. And we haven't been back in almost 50 years now. And then I started watching what Elon Musk is doing in Boca Chica, and I'm like, reliving my youth. Um, I suddenly reignited a lot of my interest in technology, and by golly, it looks like he really is going to send people to the moon and maybe to Mars, maybe even in my lifetime, certainly for you young people in your lifetime. And that's exciting. Um, but I, I've disciplined myself. Um, current events is the first draft of history. And it's usually not done very well and in, in, in extreme need of revision over time. It takes some, some time to get perspective on events. So I'm going to refrain from commenting on current events. I want to talk about something as I was walking around. I take long walks outdoors when I need to think. I have to get away from the computer screen. And um, God really, I think, was trying to get my attention and say... What are you preoccupied with? What is your focus on? Where is your identity? And you may be spending too much time on too many things that are not really all that important. In the grand scheme of things, in the more global perspective, in the more universal perspective, in the more biblical church history perspective, the current events may not be as important as um, the constant chattering classes try to make them out to be. Of course, they're dependent upon them being important because that makes them important. So I got to thinking about a sermon I actually preached 12 years ago. If any of you remember it, I will fall over in a faint. Um, so I thought it was worth preaching again because God really sort of, I think, um, wanted me to hear it again. Um, the other saying of anybody who stands in the pulpit is, you're really always sort of preaching to yourself. You're really always saying to yourself the things that God wants you to hear. So maybe this is something that, uh, I know it's something I needed to hear this week. Maybe it's something you need to hear as well. We are constantly introducing ourselves. Um, most of you know me, but when I stand up here in front of the um, people who are worshiping on a Sunday morning, I do get the sense there might be some people who are new. I, I really don't know who's watching online. There could be people there who've never seen me before and don't know anything about me. So I probably need to introduce myself in some way and think a little bit about how we do that, how we introduce ourselves, because it offers some clues about who we think we are and where we're deriving our identity. 
Everybody kind of wants to know who they are. Who am I? What, why am I here? What is my purpose? One of the clues to that is how do you talk about yourself? How do you tell somebody you've never met before who you are? What, what's most important? I mean, we say our name. Um, we might introduce ourselves as the husband or the wife of somebody. I often introduce myself by saying that my main claim to fame is that I am Cindy Shearer's husband. Um, because I really mean that. After 43s of marriage, I am still in awe of my wife's abilities and accomplishments. Um, and there are circles in which she's far more well-known than I am. Uh, if you go to a homeschool conference or you go online or you talk to people in the Charlotte Mason world, Cindy Shearer is a name that is much more known than Rob Shearer. What's really telling about us and how we introduce ourselves is in settings where we want to establish our authority or expertise. We want to give people a reason to listen to us or to think well of us. Um, how would you introduce yourself if you were the speaker at a conference and you didn't have somebody who could you know, read the script you had carefully prepared for them to establish your um, accomplishments? Um, if it were a church conference, you would probably mention your church membership. You might uh, rattle off any roles you have there if you're an elder or a deacon or a ministry leader. Um, at homeschool conferences, when we used to speak there, we would always introduce ourselves by telling people how many children we have and how long we've been homeschooling. And the answer to that is a lot and way longer than I like to remember. Um, and our reasons for doing that were natural. We were trying to establish our credentials for our audience, our authority to speak on the topic. We're trying to get them to trust us, pay attention to us, establish our authority. If you walk into a bank and you're applying for a loan, you're going to talk about your job or your company or your assets. You're going to talk about your income, how, what your ties to the community, because you want the bank to trust you, to take you seriously. Consider how you would introduce yourself in a letter to someone who doesn't know you. Depending upon the purpose of the letter, you might mention your educational background or your occupation or your experience in a particular field. So those are all our natural human strategies for establishing our identity and our authority. Uh, sometimes there's even a bit of gamesmanship. Um, a group of people who don't know each other may try to top the previous introductions with taller and taller stories. Guys do this a lot. I don't know what happens in women's circles, but guys often get into that. All right, so we established how we establish our identity and the authority in our lives. Now, let's think for a minute about how God sees us and how we identify ourselves to him and how we can reflect our identity in him and how we present ourselves to others around us. And at this point... I want to pull out Exhibit A um, from Romans 1. It's the first letter of Paul in the New Testament. It's the first book after the four Gospels in the book of Acts. It's probably not the first letter he wrote to a Christian church, but um, I think it is his most eloquent. It is the foundational expression of what the New Covenant means. The Gospels in the book of Acts tell us what happened. Romans begins the teaching of what it means. And it does it probably in the most theologically rich um, depth of all of the letters in the New Testament. So I think I've got to slide up with the, the quote. Oh, no. Oh, oh, I was going to tell a joke <laughs> about a little, a little boy and a cat. 
who mom heard the, the, the yowl of the cat and wanted to know what was going on, the little boy says, well, I was baptizing the cat. <laughs> and so the next slide. Yeah. <laughs> and she says, you know, the, the cat doesn't want to be baptized. You know, cats don't like to be immersed in water. And the little boy says, well, he should have thought of that before he joined my church. Okay. Uh, yeah, you're, you're in for the ride now. Okay. So here's Romans 1. Here's Paul introducing himself to a church he's never been to. We have other letters that he wrote to places where he'd been. He was in Ephesus for over a year. He was in Corinth for about six months. He knew those people, and they knew him. He'd never been to Rome. So he's writing to a group of Christians whom he's not met. And here's his letter. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. I'll read the rest of it because it's worth, worth reading. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who, the, who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his name's sake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. So there's Paul. Um, and, and leave that up there for a while, because that's what I really want to focus on, is how Paul introduces himself. There are a lot of things he could have said, but didn't. He didn't talk about being a Pharisee. He didn't talk about having studied with Gamaliel. He didn't talk about having first persecuted Christians and then had a dramatic encounter where he was knocked off a horse and heard Jesus speaking to him from the heavens and was converted to be a follower of Jesus. He doesn't mention any of that. But he could have. That's, by the way, an interesting way of doing an analysis on a text. is to look at what the text says and think about what it might have said but didn't because there's clearly some choices going on. So what you choose to say also implies some things that you're not choosing to say. Now, we certainly wouldn't have introduced ourselves this way. I wouldn't introduce myself this way. I was writing a letter to a group of Christians, and I, I wanted to present some points of doctrine and theology to them. I don't think I would start this way. Um, Paul doesn't mention that he's a Roman citizen. He is, and, and there are times when he uses his Roman citizenship. There are times we can, when he invokes his rights as a Roman citizen to further his ability to preach the gospel. But he doesn't do it here. He doesn't mission his ethnic identity. He doesn't say, I'm a Jew. I was a leader of the Jews. I was a rabbi. I was a student of some of the most famous rabbis and members of the Sanhedrin. Most of the followers in Jesus in Rome at this point in the history of the church probably were Jews. In every city in the Mediterranean, the first Christians came from the Jewish synagogues. That's where Paul went first. In every city he went to in Asia Minor and in Greece. He went to the Jewish synagogue and proclaimed Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of the coming Messiah. And many believed and followed him, including leaders of each synagogue. He doesn't establish his identity or his authority in any of the ways that would have first occurred to me. 
I mean, I would mention my education, my studies, my background, my citizenship, my experience, to make sure the people I was addressing had a reason to pay attention to my words. Paul doesn't. He describes himself simply as a servant and an apostle. Not just an apostle, but called to be. He doesn't say somebody appointed me an apostle. He said, I was called to be an apostle. Those words would not necessarily have resonated among the Roman Christians the way they do for us. We think of apostle as a title of honor and respect and a recognition of some sort of exalted status. It didn't always mean that. In fact, um, the Greek word behind um, the English word there, apostolos, has a simple non-religious meaning of messenger or delegate or somebody sent forth with orders. Let's turn to the next slide, another letter that Paul wrote, Titus 1. This comes at the end of Paul's life. This letter is written when he's in prison. He did get to Rome, finally, but in chains. It's a personal letter written back to a co-worker, a protege who he identifies as his true son. And in it, he opens the letter by saying, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So again, he's saying... that he is simply a servant of God, that he is a messenger and someone entrusted with good news. He doesn't mention any of the things we might have been tempted to invoke. It is a personal letter to Titus, who, who does know him, but Paul's also certainly aware that the letter will have a secondary, wider audience. He knows that it won't be just Titus who reads it um, back on Crete and the eastern end of the Mediterranean, that it will be read to the church there. Can you imagine somebody walking up and saying, Hi, I'm Rob. I'm a servant of God and a messenger of Jesus. That's essentially what Paul has done here in this letter. Hi, I'm Paul. I'm a servant of God and a messenger of Jesus. I I feel awkward saying it here. So why don't we say that? We desperately want to establish an identity that we can take credit for that we can be proud of. And if I say simply that I'm a servant of God and a messenger of Jesus, there's nothing really there for me to boast about or be proud of. And that's the point. Paul didn't want to focus, didn't want the focus to be on Paul. He wanted the focus to be on Jesus. I tire quickly of those who want to bash Paul and drive a wedge between Paul and Jesus. Never in history did anyone identify himself more with Jesus than Paul did. Those who think there's some major difference between the gospel of Paul and the gospel of Jesus need to spend more time reading the gospels and the letters of Paul. Because it's not there. There is no wedge to be driven. Sorry, that's a rabbit trail. But 
That's my identity. So if Paul's identity sums up as servant of God, messenger of Jesus, or servant of Christ Jesus and messenger of God, can the same be said about us? And, and I would submit it's actually a little trickier than it at first appears. You have to look a little more closely at those two phrases because we're reading English translations of what Paul wrote. And for 99% of what we do in the church, good English translation is sufficient. But there is one place in which almost every single English translation has fallen, I think, a little bit short, missed the target. Um, the word servant has a nice, pleasing, wholesome Christian feel to it. You hear it almost in, often in the complimentary phrase that he or she has such a servant's heart. The servant's a great church word. The Greek word's actually much, it's a much blunter and earthier word than the English. It has not been um, Christianized. In Greek, it's doulos, and it has one meaning. Slave. Not bond servant, not servant. Paul is introducing himself as a slave. A doulos. He's not being cute. He's not being falsely humble. He knew exactly what imagery he was employing and invoking. His audience would have instantly known it as well. Slavery was an institution that permeated the New Testament world. There were slave markets in every city of the Roman Empire and hundreds if not thousands of slaves in every city, every town, every province. And in English, there is a world of difference between being a servant and being a slave. A servant accepts his office voluntarily. A slave is bought. A servant receives wages. A slave has no right to compensation. A servant can leave his employment. He can quit. A slave is bound to his master. There is a perfectly good Greek word for servant. Paul doesn't use it. Paul introduces himself as a slave. Take away the stained glass meanings of the King James. Hear this as Paul's audience would have heard it. I am Paul, a slave of Jesus and a messenger of God. That's hard. That's hard for us. Everyone in Paul's world knew what a slave was. It's the simple, straightforward meaning of the word. A master purchased a doulos from the slave market and made that doulos his. It's not just an obscure verse from a few of Paul's letters. Doulos is used 137 times in the New Testament. The most formidable of all Greek dictionaries, Kittle, says the word doulos means slave. The meaning is so unequivocal, the study of history, no study of history is necessary. And King James translators never translated it that way. The translators found the phrase slave to be too harsh. And the result is to miss the point of a number of the great verses of Scripture. Because let's face it. We don't want to be slaves. I, I imagine the whole history of mankind upon the face of the earth, there has only very rarely been anybody who wanted to be a slave. It is offensive to us. 
If there's any defining characteristic for Americans, it's that we don't want to be slaves. We think slavery is wrong. We know slavery is wrong. We fought a war to establish the proposition that slavery is wrong. But that's the language that the scriptures use. The impulse we don't want to be slaves is not just a defining characteristic for Americans. It's a universal human trait. But the truth is, we are slaves. We are all slaves. As that great prophetic voice of the 1960s proclaimed, you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> yeah, Bob Dylan. Um, it might be the devil or it might be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Truth is, we are slaves. We're slaves to sin, and we don't know how to gain our freedom. There's nothing we can do to gain our freedom. We need to be set free. And Jesus is the liberator who came to set us free. He came to set us free so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Slaves to our own impulses that embarrass us and humiliate us. He wants to set us free from slavery to sin so that we can become his servants. Actually, check that. His doulos. His slaves. It's not my analysis. It's not my conclusion. That's the central theme of the New Testament. 137 times they use the word doulos. It's the core of the gospel. I am Paul, a slave of Jesus and a messenger of God, is another way of expressing the gospel in its simplest form. The gospel in its simplest form, Jesus is Lord. That's the core of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Not just, I believe he is Lord. He is Lord, whether I believe it or not. He is Lord. Whether you or I or anyone else wishes it to be true or not, it simply is true. Jesus is Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. And it's coupled with the word doulos. Every doulos has a kurios. Every slave has a master. Every slave has a Lord. Jesus is Lord. The flip side of that, the implication of that is, he's Lord, I am a slave. He's the master, I'm the slave. And this identity is actually very freeing. It means you and I have an identity that's rooted outside ourselves in something firm, eternal, unchangeable. It means we have an identity that does not depend on our ancestry or our physical abilities or our appearance or our accomplishments or our degrees or our intellect. We have an identity that is rooted in God. God knows us. God loves us. God is sovereign over us. He knew us before the foundation of the world. He sent his son to redeem us. We were bought in the slave market at a high price. And then we have the, the marvelous assurance that we can never be sold into slavery again because we belong to him. He is the shepherd, we are the sheep. He is Lord, we are his slaves. 
Jesus is Lord. It's the central truth of the Bible. It's the central teaching of the New Testament. It's the heart of the gospel. Jesus is Lord. Changes the way we view ourselves. Changes the way we view the world. Changes the way we view others. Everyone you or I will ever encounter has an identity in Christ. Everyone you or I will ever encounter is someone that Jesus wants to purchase in the slave market at the cost of his own blood. That's how much Jesus values us. He wants to buy us out of slavery. It's a message of encouragement and love that ought to leave us with deep gratitude with a deep sense of what I have done is almost beside the point. I'm not who I am because of any group that I'm a member of, any ideas that I affiliate myself with. I am who I am because I have a master who loved me and who bought me out of slavery to sin with his own blood. I am his. I am his. It's nothing I did. I am his. There's a great moment in the Luther movie where Luther is going through one of his moments of doubt and torment and, and um, in emotional despair. It's, he's about to go on trial before the emperor and afraid that it will mean his death as a martyr. And he doesn't really want to do it. Um, and his... Um, Spiritual father, advisor, the head of the Augustinian order in Germany, Johannes Staupitz, one of the great heroes, I think, of the story, gives him a cross and says, take this and pray this prayer. I am yours. Save me. That's all you need to know. That's all you need to do. That's all you need to say. I am yours. Save me. It was a great comfort. It is a great comfort. So what is our identity? We are slaves of Jesus and messengers of God. That's who we are. We are slaves bought with a price. We were very valued by our master, not for anything we intrinsically had to bring to the bargain. But he loved us, he bought us, he set us free. And then, of course, if you go on and look at what Jesus says, this gives whole new meaning to Jesus' proclamation to his followers at the Last Supper especially in the Gospel of John, he says, you are not only my slaves, my servants, now I call you my friends. Now you are my friend. Now I will share with you why I am doing some of the things I am doing. Now I'll invite you to be a part of what I do. Now I will use you in the building of my kingdom, in the proclamation of the Gospel, in the redemption of the others whom I have bought. You need to carry that message that God loves you, God has bought you. God wants to set you free from slavery to sin. But what that means is your new identity is I am a slave of Jesus and a messenger of God. That's what I want to proclaim. Nothing about me, everything about him and who he is. That's a message I needed to hear this week. I trust it's an encouragement to you as well, that we have an identity in God, that we have a value to God, and that we have a tremendous freedom, but that we remain 
fundamentally his, bought with a price, bought with his own blood, and forever free. We cannot ever be sold back to slavery. We cannot ever be sold back to slavery to sin. We now belong to him. And now he calls us not just servants, but friends. And fellow heirs, sons, children of God, our master and owner. Let me close this in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you that while we were yet sinners, while we were still slaves, while we were hopelessly lost and unable to free ourselves, that you sent your son to seek us out, to find us in the slave market, to buy us, to pay our price with his own blood, to redeem us, to bring us back into fellowship with you, to bring us back into a right relationship to you, to bring us back to our identity as your creations, as your creatures, the sheep of your pasture. Thank you, Father, that you have called us, that you have raised us and elevated us, and that you call us friends and co-heirs. Pray that you will be at work in our lives, that you will help us to proclaim the good news that we belong to you and that your message is that all can be set free from any slavery to sin and to be yours deeply and richly. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So go forth. Have a great week. Be blessed. Pray for Larry and Ann and for the um, others in the church who are wrestling with the difficult times. And uh, have a great week.